welcome to episode 108 of Literary Disco, Tower Dog. Today we'll begin with a good old-fashioned bookshelf revisit, a segment in which we take a book down from our shelves to share with the group. And then we'll discuss a new memoir from Douglas Scott Delaney entitled Tower Dog, Life Inside the Deadliest Job in America. Delaney is a writer of fiction and screenplays who also makes a living working on cell phone towers, climbing hundreds and hundreds of feet into the air to do a repair or make an upgrade, all to ensure that we have our 3G or 4G. And this is statistically the job with the highest death rate in the country. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Welcome, guys. Hello. Hey. I, I feel like today there actually is an additional <laughs> guest on the show. Oh, yeah. I feel show. that way, too. There's I feel another, like there's another person. There's another spirit in, in, involved in this conversation. Hmm. Yes. It's, Julia, It's not really do a you spirit. Talk about that? It's more of a th- a fetus. <laughs> <laughs> yes, listeners, Todd and Ryder have been very good and have not spoiled that I am pregnant. <laughs> so, although I did just put it on the internet, so it's real now. Um, so yeah, but, I'm sure. But not sure. everyone on the internet follows you on Facebook. I'm sure. What's that? Not everyone on, uh, not all of our listeners follow you on Facebook. They don't, but I also put a picture on Instagram and attracted my very first horrifying troll. Oh, please do tell. Oh, uh, well, you know, if you if you're not a woman on the internet, um, you know, you might not know that if you put something up like that and it hits a certain amount of like response, then random people who you don't know might write things like, "I hope you lose the baby." Um, which oh my god this is a thing that happens to people um it's just a it's who like what kind of fucking monster would say that are you you guys serious that you don't know that this is a thing that happens but but why you like why are you i don't know i don't know i this isn't a real this isn't a person i know or follow or follows me it's just like it's my first post it's gotten like a lot of traction Mm -hmm. So I'm sure it just popped up somewhere, and then people just, you know, be horrible. are horrible. Yeah, and it, oh, it made me feel disgusting. horrible for a second, and then I just deleted it. And I was like, I'm free, and I went on with my life. But it did make me really think about um, women in the public eye who, like, just have to have, like, entire staffs to deal with this right. kind of garbage. Right. Um, right. So God, that's my sympathy Fuck goes to person. them. Um, yeah. Whoever it was, it was a gross troll, whatever. Let's not talk about that, though. It's really exciting and cool, and I'm excited. It is really exciting. And I'll just mention that Ryder is a name that works for both genders. Um, Oh, wow. I'm just going to throw that out there. Hardly works for one gender. What about Todd Todd with two Ds? Oh, if you did Todd with two Ds, that Um, would be... (laughs) That would almost be worse than Todd any, is w- just another name. Yeah. Todd is one of those names. Todd is one of those names that's really starting to become ambidextrous. No, no, it is. Word. It's really uh, Todd. It's to- heavy. Well, look, if you're gonna have a child, and you are because you're pregnant with a baby, um, and it's a boy, and you've decided early on, hey, you know what? I want that boy to be as fratty as possible. You got two choices. You got Todd or you got Brad. So. <laughs> I would go Todd. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much. And uh, to the listeners. Um, and just in case you couldn't hear, been... Todd makes the distinction between his name, pronounced Todd, and Todd with two oh, okay. D's, pronounced Todd. <laughs> but he says he will, can, he claims he can once... hear the difference when somebody I will once again Todd. show you the difference. My name is Todd. My friend Todd's name is oh Todd. My God. <laughs> and you there see, no it's, it's, an old, you're, it's, you're, a, it's an elongated you a sound of a, Todd. You are not hearing nice. reality. Let me be the voice of reality. You are not hearing things correctly. Oh. Sorry, okay. go on, Julia. Wow. To- there's no, there's Todd, was... which is short and concise, and there's Todd, <laughs> which has a longer middle syllable. No, it doesn't. No, it, doesn't. it doesn't. You're... 
This is a delusion. This is such a delusion. All right. Uh, of all Julie, my delusions. Of all of all my delusions. All I was going to say one you guys is thank you to our listeners who have always been nice and kind and like real people and like very supportive of all of us on the internet. Yeah. So I hope this makes you happy and I hope that you're interested in more episodes about children's books because. Oh, there's going to be a lot of discussion. They're coming. Yep. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> the baby currently owns two books. Our listeners will love this. The baby has two books. It has Rad American Women A to Z, which I mm-hmm. purchased. And then Greg got Programming Computers for Babies. <laughs> <laughs> so that's pretty much all you need to know. Both books are very cool. So uh, we're done. That's it. That's all. Oh, God. Well, this is very exciting for you, and I'm super happy for you. And I feel like you now have – the baby has two uncles that he didn't know or she didn't know she was going to have for the rest of her life. One of them is a brash, sort of sexy, Freddy. great American male. The other one and is And then the tough. other one is Ryder. <laughs> <laughs> Too easy. Oh, uh, damn it. Yeah, No. I look forward to our many California visits. Yes. I look forward to, to that as well. And I'm going to try, just so kids know my travel plans, I'm, I'm hoping to get east on my book tour in the fall, which would then require me to take a train to Connecticut to see your belly and then be near you when strangers touch you because they feel like they can. Great. Sounds wonderful. I look forward to that. Um, yeah. yeah, I can't wait. Um, and as you plan that tour, we should keep our listeners apprised and I'll come with you to one thing and they can meet both of us. Oh, wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah. All right, done. We're done. doing it. It's, we're, I'm in. I'm in. All right, let's, uh, let's uh, uh, dive into our bookshelf revisit. What do you guys got to talk about? Who wants to go first? Um, you know, I want to talk about an, a great essay I just read, if I can. I, and I, it's a little bit of log rolling, I have to admit, because this is a friend of ours. But I just read an amazing essay by our friend Brie Rolf. Um, and I don't think I don't know if we've ever mentioned Brie before on the show, but she is a high school teacher in Austin, Texas, and the three of us went to graduate school with her, and she has um, cystic fibrosis, and she wrote this amazing essay um, that I've read I don't know ten times because I like to cry. Okay. Um, I have to read this, but. Mm-hmm. Oh, it, I mean, it's, it's a great it's a great piece of work. Yeah, yeah. It, it begins with, um, and I, I I put it up on our Twitter page, and I'll I'll retweet it again um, when this episode airs. Um, <clears throat> but it opens with her being in a classroom and coughing. And if you know anyone with cystic fibrosis, you know that you, there's a very distinctive earth shattering cough that they have, where it sounds like they're dying um, because they are, and. A student asked Bree as she was coughing her, her lungs out, are you dying? And for the first time ever as a teacher, I guess she lost it. And she told them she was. Um, and it's, it's an amazing piece of work about um, living with a terminal, a terminal disease um, and living with, you know, around kids, you know, high school students who – say the worst things because they don't quite know social mores and and they they say things they shouldn't say and then they live to regret them um but you know brie is uh, just this incredibly powerful young woman i guess she's 40 now um we've known her for a decade Mm -hmm. um and she has always treated her illness with a lot of cynicism um and humor um but of course, you know, that's that can be a mask for other things as well. And this essay goes into that also. But I have to tell you guys um, the amazing news, which is they, they developed this new drug. Um, and Brie found out about this new drug. I can't remember the exact name of it. But the, the drug was going to cost something like $350,000 for her to take it. And if it works, it would save her life. Um, and she didn't know if it would work. And she certainly knew she couldn't afford it. But she just found out a couple weeks ago that they're going to give her the drug for free um, or for very low price and that it does work and it is going to save her life. Um, this miracle drug that was recently developed for adult onset cystic fibrosis. Um, and it's, it's, it's uh, you know, everyone should be able to have this drug. It shouldn't cost anyone $350,000. Not if the Republicans can help it. 
Then if the Republicans can help it, but she got it and she's going to get it. I, I don't remember if she's getting it for free or, or just a very affordable price that you know fits into her budget. But so this amazing thing happened, and, and you, all of you should go read the essay. I'm, I won't spoil the essay too much, but I, it, it, it's a wonderful piece of work. But at any rate, I was um, at my MFA residency um, two weeks ago, and one of our students, one of our fiction students, is a gentleman named Arturo. And Arturo is a scientist and a researcher for a pharmaceutical company. And uh, Joe Alexander Esbaum, who was on our show, was talking to him. And it turns out that Arturo is one of the 2,000 people who worked on this drug that is going to save Bree's life. That's so cool. And I was like, oh, my God. And someone was talking to him. I was like, oh, my God, this is the drug. You're going to save my friend's life. You're going to save my friend's life. And he was like, next time she's in California, bring her down. We all want to meet her. You know, we want to see her. We want to talk to her. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's these little stories that, you know, these huge human dramas that you don't hear about every day because you're not around someone who's dying every day. Um, but, like, that's the remarkable thing about, about these little relationships that we build and we don't know what's going to come of them. You know, we met Bree when we were in graduate school. She was just a fun drunk person that we hung out with in the woods um she's also very smart and talented but yes an amazing poet an amazing (laughs) essayist um and a good drinker uh (laughs) and then there's all these little tendrils um that that end up tying into each other but anyway i'll post the essay up you should all read it um if you want a good cry um for about 20 minutes um but know that though it's not in the essay there is a happy ending which is that now she's on this drug that can that could potentially keep her alive for the, the normal length of time in her life. Yeah, that's so, I, I'm so happy for her. Yeah, so too. great. I got to read the essay. I haven't read it yet. Yeah, and I know that some of her students might listen to this podcast because she's an English teacher, and so she's responsible for a lot of students loving literature and poetry or mm-hmm. students even just graduating who would have hated English and hate it slightly less, which is truly a 10 times bigger job. Uh, yeah. so she's she a hero. Great, she is, and she's got this great creative writing group in Austin that puts out a beautiful literary magazine um, every year, and I just got my copy uh, in the mail the other day. Um, just a really inspiring teacher for young people who are interested in writing. You know, you know what? I, I, I always think of people, and maybe we all do, like Frozen and the amber of the moment when we met them. Yeah. But, you know, she's, she's a, a 40-year-old woman teaching creative writing to, to students, and man, when I was 15, 16 years old, I had a brilliant teacher who didn't think I was weird and let me write short stories instead of book reports. And that changed my life. Um, her, this woman's name was Kathy Kane. And in my mind, Kathy Kane was 100 years old, but she was, you know, she was 38. Um, and I just, <laughs> Great, uh, thanks I just heard, to all of us. I just heard from a, a friend uh, that, that she actually was, you know, she's now retired and living in Illinois and apparently quite ill. But... Um, you know, you think about these important people in your life, and sometimes you forget that those important people are your friends um, that are changing kids' lives, and that's that's pretty cool. That is cool. What are you reading, Julia? Uh, well, mine is not nearly so nice, but I it is a really good book. Um, I watched... I was hunting around on Netflix, and I watched... I have, I'm going to have to look up the author, so I'm stalling. Um... I watched The Big Short uh, recently, which I hadn't seen. Did did we talk about this? It was a movie with Mm -hmm. uh, Christian Bale and a huge number of awesome people. I really liked it. That was a good movie. Yeah, it was so good. And it was so good. And now, like, I've... Hated it. Okay. Well, (laughs) fine. All right. But we're not going to talk about the movie. This is only a gateway, okay? Okay. So, uh, but I was very interested uh, on the level that I think... You, even you so will respect. Really well. loved it. All right. The book is great. But right. I <laughs> just let me get it out. So you read the book. So what right. I realized was that I stuff. that we all know so little about um, basically how the financial industry works. So I'm in the middle of the book and just trying to like absorb and comprehend. Uh, all of these like real estate market things and uh, the people who work there and what their values are and what their, you know, it's this whole other world that I know nothing about. So that's what I'm reading, even though Ryder hates it. Um, but I'm reading it totally from a point of view of like, what is this? What can I learn? 
and can I, like, since the subject is so outside of my field, like, having the experience of, like, movie and book and being able to, like, kind of marry them in my mind has really helped my comprehension. Is that acceptable to you? Did you ever (laughs) hear the... Did Michael you ever hear Lewis of This American genius. Life, which launched Planet Money? It was all about the, the crash of 2008. Have you, you guys haven't heard this? I have not listened to the... I actually lo- I love Planet Money. Um, that's a great right. podcast. Um, but I've never listened to that series. Okay, yeah. So this was the first... This was Planet Money uh, was launched because of an episode of This American Life um, where they, they covered the 2008 real estate crisis and like just just described it in a way that you know in one hour you've like you can wrap your head around what happened and how that occurred it's amazing it's like the most educational like concise um yeah i i I hated the big short the movie though i just felt like it it was so condescending and like you know the let's here's a hot person in a bathtub to describe what's happening yeah yeah sure ugh and then I just felt like Wolf of Wall Street. It was like somebody had watched Wolf of Wall Street and listened to this Planet Money episode and just decided to make but a movie. Wolf, Wolf I, of Wall Street and The Big Short came out at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, and Wolf of Wall Street did it better. I agree. It was, well, the, it agree. was the next year. It was the next year. Was it the next year? It was, yeah, it was the next year. Well, I, um, I did a, an event with Michael Lewis a couple months ago. And um, fascinating guy. And I'm a huge Michael Lewis fan. But we did this event. Uh, in front of like 1,500 Republicans in Indian Wells. And their take on Michael Lewis's books was entirely different than Michael Lewis's take on Michael yeah. Lewis's book. He was taught that they were talking about um, the blind side. And, um, you know, he was talking about how this was a microcosmic look at the exploitation of young men and all these things and, the, you know, about the money involved with it and all this stuff. And the moderator of this event said, you know what, though? I think what the, what the blind side really showed and um, what the movie did really well is it shows what strong Christian values can do for a young African-American and really <laughs> how, how a strong Republican family can take an African-American in and really you know, show him the way. And Wendy and I were there, and Wendy and I were like, what? What, what the fuck is going on? And Wendy's like, we're leaving right now. And I'm like, That's fascinating. Like, we can't leave because... I'm one of the guests here. <laughs> right. but, but that's amazing because that was, was the criticism like, of the yes, movie. Absolutely. People, really? Yeah. So it's like just completely, that's what they see when they watch that movie. Yeah, and Michael it's, Lewis is like, that was not what the book nor the movie is about. Oh my Good God. for him. Oh yeah, I mean, I think um, the, the way that he writes, and I mean, I didn't see Wolf of Wall Street and I actually don't know anything about it, but I mean, this is serious nonfiction mm-hmm. in that these are real people I mean, these are real numbers. These are real stories. I mean, the the person that is portrayed by Steve Carell in the movie, um, his they don't go into this in the movie. They sort of like allude to it, or they allude to some similar tragedy, or rewrite it. But um, but this man who like saw this coming was in a deep depression because his um, his nanny had rolled over and smothered his baby. Yeah. I mean, these are people who. They're not, you know, just Christian Bale walking around with no shoes on. These are real, <laughs> real people. And so, like, to read about them making these, like, guesses and predictions and calls is really, really interesting. And, like, to go back to what you're saying, Todd, um, Michael Lewis is, like, it's very clear where he stands. Like, he mm-hmm. was a young stockbroker. I'm sure you know this from talking to him, but he was just so disgusted by it that he lasted like an incredibly short amount of time, like a couple of years, and then has devoted his life to trying to like (laughs) explain to people what the hell is happening with their own economy. Mm -hmm. So like his point of view is not at all like, oh, this is so cool. It's like very, very ominous. So if people are interested or curious about it, or if you like the movie or hated the movie, I would... I would encourage you to like at least page through this because it is fascinating and a, a good entry into a world that really affects all of us. Yeah, and Michael Lewis makes finance sound like a thriller. You know, he really he really yeah. knows how to manipulate um, facts into plot, basically. Um, and he, you know what? There was one thing that was fascinating. Someone asked him because they were talking that night. They were talking a lot about The Big Short and also about Liar's Poker, which was his uh, his first book about Wall Street. And they asked him what he invests in. And what he invests in is he just buys stock in Warren Buffett's company. 
Berkshire Hathaway, <laughs> which is like, that's oh, a method. That's, it's genius because you're like, oh, you're buying stock in Warren Buffett then. You're buying stock in his decision making. And therefore, like, you got to have a lot of money to be able to afford Berkshire Hathaway stock. But, like, that's a really sort of sound investment advice. Hmm. So for, for the, the, the one percenters listening to the show, <laughs> buy Berkshire Hathaway. <laughs> I'm, not sure, I'm not sure how much of the stockbroker set uh, literary disco penetrates. <laughs> I, think, I have a feeling pretty we're low. pretty low on the Wall Street uh, total. Yeah. But. <laughs> yeah, but I will say, like, putting aside stockbrokers, you know, everyone should understand investing and if you have any savings at all, you should invest it because this is how this is how wealth gap, you know, happens is people don't know what to do with their money. And then people who know how to invest just get 50 bazillion times richer than everybody else. Right. So even if you're investing $100 or $1,000, you know, go for it and understand it. You know, it's or just buy a shitload of weed and sell it to your friends. Yeah. Okay. All right, Ryder, what are you reading? (laughs) I'm going to do a bookshelf revisit that I hope I haven't done before, um, because I I know we've talked about this person before, but I don't don't know if I've talked about this specific book. But um, Rockwell Kent is an amazing um, illustrator, and he's he's most famous for he illustrated an, an edition of Moby Dick, which is kind of considered one of the 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 best editions of Moby Dick ever published. Um, I forget who published it, but it was published in like the 30s or 40s, and it was accompanied by the these um, illustrations that he had done. They were woodcuttings, and they are so beautiful. And it, he has this like specific style. Um, it's it's. I'm not even going to try to explain it because I'm not like a real visual art person. So I'll just tell everyone listening: Google the name Rockwell Kent and look up his. Um, his illustrations for Moby Dick. Um, if you're a fan of Moby Dick and you, you've probably seen them before. He's also his big claim to fame. Uh, he drew the house that is the random house logo, that little house. Yeah. Really? So he, what he did, he was a commercial guy. He, he, he like made his living doing, um, you know, for higher graphic work, um, for companies like random house or whoever. And then, and then he eventually got, hired to do this um, Moby Dick and he did that and then he sort of got known he became known for his interpretive quality like the way that his illustrations in these like kind of simple almost now we would maybe call them comic booky but at the time you know that that wasn't quite comic book comic books weren't really a thing um so he 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 established this interpretive uh like it's a use of black and white and negative space like like i said i'm really bad at describing this but just look up his stuff and i love his illustrations but i want to talk about a book that he wrote um he went to alaska for a year with his nine-year-old son and just the two of them and and lived off the land in alaska and he kept a journal I'm doing a similar thing, except I'm going on a cruise. Yeah, you're doing a cruise. Go ahead. (laughs) So it's called Wilderness, a journal of quiet adventure in Alaska. And it's just him and his son. um, And, you know, I I haven't read it all the way through. I flip through it and just read and look at the illustrations because he was drawing constantly in his journal. And he includes his son's drawings at times. Um, he describes like what his son is doing and how they're interacting with the local animals and like not much happens. It's just basically like they go to Alaska and they find an old uh, cabin that's already built and they live off the land by like hunting and fishing. And, and then there are some locals that they meet up with and that help them out when the weather gets bad and stuff. But he's really, what's so interesting to me is like, he's just of a different generation. He, you know, he's what like, Back then, you weren't just like an illustrator of books who he, he's like so well read. He's really into like transcendentalist writing like Emerson and Thoreau and all of them. Um, he's really kind of like this Renaissance man in the, the traditional sense of the word, like that he could he kind of does it all and can build his own things and write really well and draw really well. And his son, who ends up being a doctor, I believe, um, is also like this really inquisitive, smart kid and really sensitive. And you just get this like, I don't know, it's it's just a, a nice reflective style of writing. Um, you know, I feel like most often... When did it come out? The book, he, he published it right when they, I think right when they came back from Alaska. So it was probably in the 40s or 50s. Um, oh, wow. 
but it's it's just it's just interesting to read something i guess for me like i tend to you know when 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 i read a book that's like a journal of somebody you know homesteading somewhere it's because it was like a dramatic experience where like a lot of things happened or you know something historical came of it um whether it's thoreau living in his cabin he just you know it's about the philosophy and the effect this is none of those things this is just a father and a son hanging out together in alaska for no other reason than to have this sort of life-changing experience and um and it's just a really smart person who can draw very well and write very well about this time. Um, and I, I just love it. I find it soothing. I find it to be very soothing literature because I'm not reading it for any other reason than to just sort of, you know, be reminded of times that I've spent in the wilderness where you just sit and look at a tree for a while and then you draw it and write about it. And um, so I, I love it. So if anybody's looking for like a soothing sort of meditative and interesting glimpse at the father-son wilderness story rockwell count kent's wilderness is definitely worth it i'm gonna i'm gonna pick it up just so that i can uh see it when i'm um in my first class uh room on the giant cruise ship where i'm eating lobster all day right yeah that'll be perfect <laughs> great good <laughs> with without my son because i don't have children because i'm i don't like to share my genes <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's one of the grossest things I've ever said. Very weird. That was disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. That was weird. All right, let's move on to Tower Dog. <laughs> Yay! Right. So, Tower Dog: Life Inside the Deadliest Job in America. Well, uh, what do we have to say about this, guys? It opens with a well. Let's 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 describe what every. Between every chapter of this book is a death report from wow. a local news source describing what each is horrific. Yes, each one. Um, yeah, and uh, I mean, I stopped reading them. I'll be honest because they got to be too like you kind of knew the gist. Uh, a lot of people die climbing cell phone towers, which is something that. I had never heard about until Todd, you recommended that we read this book. Um, and now that I've read this book, I know is a very real statistical reality um, that yeah, people fall from towers and it seems like most often it is their own fault in some way because they weren't buckled right. in properly or following proper procedure. Um, but there also doesn't seem to be much in place in terms of worker standards, safety, regulations Training. to sort of regulate Anything. this industry. So what ends up happening, it seems, is that the cell phone companies that own these towers um, or that use these towers, if they don't own them themselves, uh, farm out to a middle management company the uh, hiring and overseeing of uh, any sort of retrofitting or upgrades or adjustments to these towers. And so it's about three or four rungs down the chain of command that uh, this somebody like Douglas Scott Delaney who wrote this book comes along and is hired to climb a tower and just fix something. And yeah. it sounds like the most insane job in the world. The first chapter is, is his description of his first climbing. And, um, it sounds miserable. It's physically exhausting. You're literally climbing hand, hand over hand up a tower and up to like 400 feet in the air. Sometimes more than that. Sometimes more. Yeah. 1400 up to 2000. There's, insane. there's right. one that is, there's one climb that someone does that is the height of the Empire State Building. Right. Isn't that what it was? I mean, yeah. it's, it's absurd. Higher. And it's they have, like, absurd. basically their own weather systems up there. It's yes. Like, oh, my God. Uh, yeah. And and these guys are, you know, sometimes they're climbing in pairs. Uh, or I think most often they're climbing in pairs if they're being safe about it. Um, so it's always this, this near-death experience. And what seems to accompany that is a heavy drinking and drugs culture and a sort of you know, these guys pick up jobs when they can and they all camp out together in hotels and save their per diem um, so they can go to strip clubs. And it seems like it's a kind of, you know, I think it's, it's like a lot of um, tough jobs like coal mining or, you know, it has, it seems to attract a white working class, gritty male dominated sort of world and that's what he spends a lot of the time on this book describing and participating in um and then the other aspect to this book is his attempts to sell a reality show based on it um based on this lifestyle um and that results in an episode of dateline on nbc 
focusing on this. Um, anyway, what do you guys think of the book? Let's let's get that out of the way. Julia, well, there, thoughts? There's, there's, there's one other thing, though, just to, just to talk about just for one sec, which is the undercurrent also is that this is a job, all of this, all these people are, are putting themselves in jeopardy that they're dying every 33 days. Yeah. Essentially so that we have good cell reception on our phones to update our Facebook pages. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there's a little, there's the banality of why it happens right. yeah. that also creates a, something larger, I think, that we can talk about as it relates to society. But go ahead, Julia. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, so, I mean, I have a lot of different thoughts about this book, as I'm sure you guys do. But, I mean, the first thing that has to be said, and, and this is similar to what I was saying about The Big Short, is this is a world that I didn't know existed at mm-hmm. all. So just on a curiosity level of, who are these people? What do they do? And how does it work? You know, I was certainly very interested in that. And <laughs> the the guilt and shame that Todd is alluding to of, you know, every time I use my phone, I'm putting someone in danger uh, <laughs> is very, very interesting. And I, I think there could have been a lot more with that. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I just want to get this out of the way because I've said it like every single time we read a book that does this, like, it hits my o- my only true pet peeve, which is, like, the meta thing about, like, telling the story that we're reading. You know what I mean? I'm like, right. I don't I don't know about your reality show, dude. Like, <laughs> I would rather hear about the uh, experience of being a tower dog. And, I mean, I thought the various people in it were super interesting. I'd love to talk about that later. Um, but the writing of it is like very present. This isn't a book where you're like, oh, I'm absorbed in this story and I'm not thinking about the author. You're thinking about um, Douglas Scott Delaney the whole time. Um, So I think that voice is going to, a lot of people will really like it and a lot of people might not like it so much um, because yeah, he's straddling these two worlds of, you know, like, blue collar, super risk taking. And then he's like, and now I'm doing these deals in these Hollywood boardrooms or whatever, which you guys know <laughs> so much more about than I do. So that's, that's pretty whiplashy. So those are my, my overall thoughts. How about you guys? Yeah. The, the stuff about actually being a tower dog is absolutely fascinating. Um, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm sitting in my office at UC Riverside right now and I can look out my window and I can see a tower um, Keep talking into is, the mic, Todd. Keep oh, I'm talking sorry. I, I, yeah. I, I can look out my window <laughs> and see a tower um, like three blocks away. And it's it's about 175 feet in the air, and it's painted to look like a palm tree. So, you know, they, they gussy them up in Southern California. I don't know if they right. do everywhere right. else. Um, but all over the desert, these towers look like palm trees, um, which is weird. So, like, learning about the inside life of a tower dog, learning about the banality of danger – like every single day, these people could kill themselves, and and the people that work these jobs, there's there's a couple people there that that Delaney himself describes as the dumbest people he's ever met in his I entire know. life. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. and they're not only putting themselves at risk, they're putting the people below them at risk, and that means the people that are working with them, but also just anyone walking by could die. And there's lots of examples in the book of, of these horrible deaths that people have where, you know, someone at the, on the ground dies as well. So all that stuff is super fascinating. The, the aspect of it um, about Delaney himself, so Delaney is sort of a, he describes himself as a failed writer um, because he had been a screenwriter. Um, and, he, you know, like many people who are screenwriters, he had an early brush with some success. He got some stuff options, got some stuff sold did some rewriting jobs, but never actually saw anything of his, you know, become successful, is not, is not an unusual story. I mean, that's, that's what happens in, in, in Hollywood. Um, and that his story is also fraught with, you know, his own anxieties and lack of self-worth and all that stuff. Again, not great for the person, but not unusual. Um, and I think there's a, there's a, a skew in the balance of drama. The, the, the quest to make a reality show about tower dogs, which is a, a large part of what this book also entails, is frankly not as interesting as any of these guys possibly falling from a tower and dying. And then you realize yep. when you're watching a show like, um, you know, one of those crab shows or something, Deadliest Catch or what have you, 
um, how much they have to edit to make just the regular workday seem dramatic. And he, he goes into that a bit too. But th that the the actual job is scary. The reality show is is just a show, you know, that they're mm -hmm. manipulating into things. And so it becomes less interesting because we're seeing the real life and the real life right. matters. The reality show doesn't matter. The reality show, you can change the channel and that person is still in a perilous situation whether you're watching or not. Um, and so I, I felt like there was an imbalance dramatically in the book that frankly didn't need to be there. That he yeah. could have written this entire book just about being a tower dog and left the stuff about the reality show out and the book would have been better for it. Right. Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. I think we we all agree on that front. <laughs> um, I you know ultimately like I I I I feel pretty bad for Douglas Delaney. <laughs> like I don't uh, he's he's got a lot of self loathing that comes oh, across ton, in this yeah. book. And at first, I was really kind of annoyed by the tone, the sort of anti Hollywood tone that he has. This sort of like writers are a bunch of pussies who don't do anything thing. Like he has this swagger to like this Hollywood blah, blah. And I was like, wait a minute, you're a writer. You're the one selling a reality show or trying to sell a reality show. What What is your angle here? And I was like, okay, because you have this, this other life of being a tower dog, you feel like it's more real and more gritty and more life or death stakes. Um, but then, which is course, true, which is definitely <laughs> which true, is right? True. But then, through the course of the book, I didn't feel like he really identified with those people either, because as he admits, those people are dumb. They don't have a functioning, you know, fourth grade reading level for the most part. There are a lot of drug addicts. There's a lot of ridiculous violence, and so I was like, "Well, you're not painting a very good portrait of these people either." And it's like, I, I, I guess what I thought was going to be a sort of anti Hollywood like you know, uh, blue collar, like my, my workers or my coworkers are my real family thing. He ends up kind of being alone at the end, having alienated a lot of his coworkers trying to get the reality show going. Right. So at the end of the book, I just felt sorry for him. You know, he ends with this chapter about how he was the greatest tower dog and, and you know, he, he's, he's, I don't know. It just, it sounded, it seemed desperate to me. It seemed sad. And I was like, Oh, this poor guy has not, really uh learned anything from this experience of trying to get this reality show off the ground like nothing's really changed for him it's become another failure for him in like you were saying todd he, had, he talks about being a failed screenwriter which is kind of bullshit because like mm -hmm. you were working man like just because you weren't like you know a, a million exactly or name on, your right? right there's so many working screenwriters that have you know credits on imdb or not enough credits on imdb because they didn't even get publicized but they were making a living as a writer or you know you could still i don't know it, it, it's it's a weird tone and i i well, just like you're, you you kind of have to be on board with him as a narrator because like you were saying julia his voice is front and center and he's mm -hmm. very yeah. he has a very aggressive sort of like here's my attitude and here's the people you know and and uh i was turned off by that aggressiveness and then i by the end i just felt kind of like ugh. Well, and, you know, to, there's another layer that you're not even addressing, Ryder, which is like he sold us this book and this book is like very interesting mm -hmm. and at, at times like really good. So it's like, why do you hate yourself so much? Right. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really accurate. It's like, I don't feel bad for you that you couldn't sell your reality show when you sold a book, which anyone who's reading this book may <laughs> share in that kind of dream. So right. it's a that's weird like, sort of, it's a, it's a meta thing. Yeah. 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 It's and, like, and the fact it, is also that after reading this book, I thought, Oh, this would actually make a really good film, you know, huh. um, you know, uh -huh. a dramatic film. Like they, they did a front line about this stuff and they did a dateline about this stuff. So the reality show didn't happen, but other stuff did. Okay, um, but but don't you have like, like for me like, okay, if I was gonna adapt this into a screenplay, right? If I mm -hmm. if, if somebody said like, right, or what would you? The first thing I would be, do is like, what's going on with his wife and his kids? Yes, <laughs> like there's the drama, and he mentions them in the beginning, and he mentions like that he has a strange relationship with them, an arrangement. And then never talks about them again. And you're like, well, dude, what's it like to be a dad when you're a tower dog? Talk about that. Like, tackle that. Or or tell us about your strange relationship or arrangement with your wife. Because it never gets mentioned. And, and then right. it just kind of goes away. And it's like, well, and then at the end, you find out that they're not together anymore. And you can't help but be like, isn't there a story there? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, but it, but absolutely. If you're about... But that's... 
like that's such a that's like such a film or TV narrative perspective. Right. Like, I mean, there's so much good literature that is built around. Uh, this is a term I used a lot in college: the homosocial world. So mm. you know, like men being together. Right. That's oh, gotcha. that's what it's called. <laughs> giggle, giggle. I, I have uh, not heard this term before. <laughs> it's it's so it's so useful. So yeah. this is and this is totally what genre this is in. This is like. Uh, you know, you have your outside world, but, and you know, this is like any army literature, like you, there's this outside world and yeah, you're thinking about it, but like your deepest relationships and connections and trust are with these men that you're like climbing up these fucking poles of steel, um, to, to, you know, like that's, of course he feels close to these men. Um, and I think the, the war narrative is, is, you know, I think it's something Delaney actually plays on quite a bit, but it's also a lot of the same, um, a lot of the same emotional things that are happening that you're putting your trust in these guys to literally have your back and not let you fall to your death. Um, And they're, these are the guys that the night before you saw drinking, you know, 20 cans of natural light in a, in an extended state parking lot somewhere in the middle of nowhere. On like an hour of sleep too. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, and even the language is, is military language. Like, you know, at, at first muster, we did X, Y, Z, you know, we band of brothers, all this stuff. And the the nicknames are sort of, you know, um, troop nicknames that people have. So there's a lot of that we're at war thing. I think the question, though, that Delaney sort of skirts around and which is the larger depth is who are they fighting for? And mm-hmm. and the answer is the the banality, which is they're fighting for my cell reception. You know, that they're these dudes are climbing 500 feet into the air Essentially, so when I pick up my phone right now and I see that I have two bars and I'm like, what the fuck? Why the fuck do I only have two bars? Why can't I get decent fucking cell reception? I'm an American I'm an American man in an American city. Give me my cell phone. Well, it's because, you know, maybe they haven't gone up and fixed that thing in that tower, you know, three blocks away. It, it That people have jobs where they could die every single day so that I have the luxury of having one more bar on my cell phone makes me feel guilty as a human being. It should. (laughs) I'm serious. I mean, that's, I mean, we could go on about this forever, but people don't think about where their clothes come from. They don't think about where the food comes. I think food is becoming a lot more mainstream um, to at least consider where it is being made or grown um but we need to think about these things you know it's so easy to disengage so i'm happy that this exists and but i do wish like you todd that this book engage with it more um i would like to pause and talk about some of the descriptions of the people Mm -hmm. in this book i hesitate to call them characters because they're real but they're great um i think this is like the high the absolute highlight of the book and probably alone makes it worth uh, makes it worth reading. Um, but I love the description of his manager leader dude, uh, Jimmy. When we first meet him, he's like, all right, I'll just read some of it. Uh, the Godfather was one was one anal motherfucker, and that discipline saturated his life. His paperwork was immaculate. When sitting down to eat, he would arrange his placemats and menus just so and then take the napkin and clean his own silverware. The dogs called him the truck Nazi because he insisted on all company vehicles being cleaned and properly maintained at all times. This, of course, only happened when he was around, and it was a source of never-ending angst for him. His own truck looked like it just rolled off the factory floor, and he could not understand why the men simply could not live up to his expectations. Whereas most most tower dogs, trucks, and motel rooms in general appearance were succotash. Jimmy did not mix his peas with his carrots. Frankly, nobody ever lived up to Jim's expectations, and that was mainly because nobody could really do anything as well as he could. And then mm-hmm. just to jump, um, the angriest I have ever seen him, or frankly anyone for that matter, is when I spilled a cup of coffee in the center console of his truck. <laughs> the man verily exploded. His normally cherubic face turned bright red and downright demonic. He frothed at the corners of his mouth. You ignorant motherfucker, I'm going to kill you, he explained, and he meant it. <laughs> uh, which is so, it's a great description. We all know people like that, but then, you know, he goes on to say, like, 
you know, everyone wanted to work for this guy. Like, you don't right. feel like you're going to fall off a tower and die. Um, so I really loved a lot of those descriptions and humans that walk through this book. Can I read the most harrowing death that happens? Sure. Okay. This is late in the book. And this isn't a spoiler or anything. Like Ryder said earlier, the chapters are all bifurcated by reports of these people dying. Uh, so this is July 2nd, 2014. The worker killed while working on a Harrison County cell phone tower has been identified as 28-year-old Joel Metz, a father of four. A cable somehow decapitated Metz and left his body suspended from the tower on Waits Road off Kentucky 36 Wednesday afternoon. A preliminary autopsy report says Metz died from blunt force injuries. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> and his death is an accident. Harrison County Sheriff Bruce Hampton says Metz worked for Fortune Wireless out of Indianapolis, which is near where Metz lived. The company was back out at the scene Thursday morning trying to figure out what caused the cable to loosen, leading to Metz's death. Authorities first believed the cable had broken, but after investigating, the sheriff says the cable was still in one piece. The three other workers at the tower reported hearing a loud pop before realizing what happened. Quote, not too many people are used to seeing that, and it's a guy that you've been working next to, said Sheriff Hampton. And it could have been him. Nobody else was injured, and they were just very beside themselves. Sheriff Hampton says the men were taking down an old boom and bringing up a new one when a cable broke, decapitating the worker and ripping off his right arm. Oh, Quote, geez. it got within two feet of where it was going, and something broke, and then the 1,800-pound boom fell, said the sheriff. The worker's body was left suspended 240 feet in the air, and crews were trying to determine how to get the man down. And it goes on. They didn't end up getting the man down uh, until the next day. So this guy's body was strung up, you know, almost 300 feet in the air without a head and without an arm. Mm. Um, and they have to, you know, the, there, there's no real way to, to get the person down. And so the, the paramedic who was on the scene or the firefighter on the scene said, we don't get a lot of training on how to deal with horrific, horrific accidents, the stuff you shouldn't see in a lifetime. But we do, and that's why we stand watch. Like, even mm. like it's bad when the fire chief is like, that was some shit I didn't need to see. Yeah. Yeah. But that's like that death is, is a, it's horrific, but there's a couple decapitations here. And it's just the nature of this job that they'll be up there and the wind will blow wrong and a wire will move and it'll cut off your fucking head. Also, we can uh, literally also, we can have the wireless conversation we're having right now, basically. Um, and, and, you know, th that it's left to people that aren't properly trained and aren't educated, that they're essentially sending people up these towers that don't have any money and don't have any education. So therefore, they are the people willing to do this job is, you know, that's a fundamental issue about work in America today, um, that we, we take the, the least trained um, and the least educated to do the jobs that might kill them is a, a ghettoization of people themselves. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which is I which wonder, is you know, he, he, it, well, he, it, it's interesting. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess this is a bit of a spoiler, but we've already alluded to the fact that the reality show did not happen. Right. Um, and he doesn't quite know why exactly. Um, but it seems like it mostly came down to a liability issue. Right. That no one who owned a tower, none of the companies that own these towers, would allow them to film a reality show that would presumably at some point probably capture a death, statistically speaking, right? Like, um, and that's fascinating, right? That, like, it's okay for us to have cell phones that this goes on, but if we're going to publicize it and make a TV show out of it, they're not going to allow that. Um, right. So, yeah, it seems like an industry that could use some more attention, which hopefully this book will help bring. And um, maybe some articles can be written to help regulate this industry or at least insert some sort of safety standards or training. Um, but I don't know. I also just don't know how much of that is somebody needs to climb these towers at some point. Right. And That's in which case, maybe they should just be paid a lot better. And then, you know. Well, there's a point in the book where, where the, they're like, you know, People always think I get paid $37 an hour, right? There's, there's a yeah. that point in the book. Well, it turns out these guys are getting paid 14 bucks an hour to climb these, these things, which is, which is less than minimum wage in, in some parts of America right now. Yeah. 
14 bucks an hour plus a per diem for, um, you know, for food and stuff. I mean, it's for $37 an hour, maybe they get better people um, that, you know, would, would hook themselves. But there's a point in the book also, like there's, there's a lot of, in the crew that Delaney's on, there's a lot of talk of how they get rid of the, the worst guys because uh, the guys at the bottom, the three wide men, as they're called, um, you know, are, are running a pretty clean shop. But even Delaney himself, you know, begins to trust his skills more than he cares to hook himself up to everything. There's, there's one moment in the book where he realizes that he's been free climbing for like 60 feet or something like that for hours. And the only thing that has stopped him from plumbing to his death is that the guy behind him inexplicably had hooked him. Um, but the Delaney himself just, just like, oh, yeah, I'm just doing my thing. Um, I mean, most of the people that die in this book die because of their own fault, um, mm. which, is, which is horrifying. Um, what else? Any other thoughts on the worst job that anyone could ever have? <laughs> well, there was one there was one other anecdote that I wanted to mention because I mean obviously this is violent and gruesome and everything, but there is a wonderful uh interlude towards the end where uh he picks up on a cell phone call um over his radio and it's a woman who's basically being domestically abused and mm. he's just on the call because He's on a cell phone tower, and I guess that's how that works. Uh, so he starts talking to her, and it's just it's a great in- incident, mm-hmm. you know, um, and just like a beautiful little scene. And I won't read from it or give it away, but like there are details like that too that are just so they catch the imagination, and they're they're really sad and they're really interesting. So it's not only people being decapitated. No, no. And I, I think Delaney does a nice job, um, you know, showing these people that he works with. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't know, Ryder, if you feel the same way, but, man, I never feel less manly than when I'm reading about dudes that can fight and drink. <laughs> but see, that's the kind of bullshit that I hated about this book. I know, like, I, I know. I don't, yeah. like, it, it's, it's impossible it for me to, a... empath- to be them. Like, it's hard for but me to empathize felt... with them because I can never be them. But... That's but that's the point. Different... Is that, but I feel like it's yeah. this book kind of intentionally overemphasizes those that thing. Like it's, I don't know. I mean, I remember I I I I gave Ron Curry Jr. shit for the way his the tone of the flimsy plastic miracles. Was that, what was the name of the the book that we did? Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I, I just it, I just saw him and he's still mad at you. Yeah, I imagine. But you know, it, <laughs> I and I thought that book was actually. Great, um, and I don't think this book is 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 as great by any means. But I was reminded in the sort of like you know, Delaney likes to add a goddamn it into as many sentences right. as he can. You know, you're goddamn right, I did. Hell, it was cold, but you know, you can just imagine like the way he like the voice he hears in his head as he's writing that this sort of like I mean, at one point he actually refers to himself as or themselves that the, as cowboys, like modern day mm-hmm. cowboy. And I was like, oh Jesus, like you're just tapping into this like machismo Western like what? And like at one point when you know he. He gets into a tower and he he literally positions himself as way above all the like lame Hemingway wannabes below him. Do you guys remember this section? Yes. <laughs> it's like yeah. it's like his insecurities about the fact that he's just a writer just pouring out into this page in the sequence where he's like, at least I'm up in this tower and all these like well, here it goes. He's he climbs up and he says, like, he's looking down on Brooklyn and Hoboken. He goes, they could even have a Starbucks down there crammed with playwrights and novelists. Breslin's with backpacks pounding the urban beat. Little Hemingway's sticking pencils in one ear and quoting Nietzsche. It's like, what are you talking? Like, oh, they're they're so awful down there in their Starbucks writing important works to try and change the world. I'm up here risking. It's like I just don't understand why he hates himself so much, or why he has to do this like swagger of like just be a writer, man. Or if you're not a writer, be a tower dog. Like, why is there? He has clearly has this tension like in Mm -hmm. himself that he's like playing out in the page, and he's not. And I understand. Like, I was hoping that that would come full circle in a like 
really nicely self-examined way and it doesn't like he it just doesn't. clearly yeah. thinks this makes him a badass and he's got to let so, us know how much of a badass he and his badass friends are and all the fights they get in and i'm just like ugh, you know it's like it's, you know oh here are my friend farty and sean dog and crusty and <laughs> we got really drunk and <laughs> just, i almost stabbed somebody and here i beat the shit out of somebody with aids it's like it gets really dark in this way that i don't think he's aware of like the misogyny and uh, the racism. Like, oh, there's he, a lot he's of aware that of the misogyny. Here. I mean, okay, but he, he like, makes a point to, to point that out. Well, but he still doesn't have a female character in there's the book. N- well, well, there, well, it's because there's there's one female that does it, Nikki. And you know Nike, that's the thing. Yeah, but she and he obviously he spent six months with her filming a TV show, and she doesn't enter this book at all. That's what I mean. He doesn't give a shit about the women. But let, just for a moment, though, the, the, and this is the thing that I find sort of um, gross about reality TV. Well, I mean, I find a lot of things gross about reality TV. There's all these people that are doing this job, and it's, it's horrible and awful, and then they only really get interested when a, a pretty woman walks in, and how can they sort of exploit this pretty woman as the outlier of this job, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just sort of gross. Um, not that yeah. she does the job, but, like, that, oh, you know, this is this is the hook. Is there's this hot woman um, with the you know with the sultry voice that that we can make a reality TV show star. And knowing what I know about reality TV, like that's they do that all the time. I, I had a friend who was they were going to do a show um, set up in the desert um, about people living in like Twenty Nine Palms and Wonder Valley, and they basically imported models in to hang out in a bar that they could make the stars of this reality show. And it's just like why not just focus on the the real people? Nikki in the book is a real person. But it just sort of goes to the, the cravenness of the form where they're like, oh, finally we have a hot person we can focus on instead of these toothless guys. <laughs> so I think it took, I agree with everything you guys are saying, but I think it took Todd's insecurity, like voicing his own insecurity about his manliness to like really put the finger on mm-hmm. what the problem is here, which is it's not about the lack of representation of women for me. It's just this defensiveness of masculinity um, that you guys are describing. And I think, yeah, I mean, like we're all talking about and engaging with these issues every day. And I feel myself like day over day, getting more of aware of like just wanting to tell men, like you don't have to do this. You know what I mean? Like this seems really exhausting, you know, keeping this up. Um, please stop. You know, it's hurting you. It's hurting other people. It's putting, you know, it's putting yourself literally in danger in this case, you know, like we're so brave. We're so X, Y, Z, you know, that's, that's absolutely, that's absolutely it. That's, that's like the trouble with this voice. And this voice isn't dissimilar from like Hunter S Thompson or other people it's compared, compared with in the past. It's just starting to feel a little dated or, or not self-aware anymore of like, it's, you don't have to do it, this. It always has been. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. I guess it just seems really misapplied in this case to me. Um, well, frustratingly it's just, so. It's this, I mean, you know, when I said I don't ever feel less of a man than when I read about these things, it's because I don't, I don't get into any fights and I don't do any of these things, but I also don't think that makes you a man. Yeah, so you shouldn't, but Todd, like, to put this back on you, like, you just shouldn't say things like that. Because it's, (laughs) I'm I'm dead serious. Like, it's men making those comments, you know, that reinforce this. Yeah, but there there is a, um, I mean, it's a stereotype, of course, of, you know, the, the tough guy who's also a deep thinker, which, you know, this is like the Richard Ford character that existed in the 1980s, um, you know, of the, the tough guy that can work the mill and drink whiskey but also, you know, quote literature that has never really existed except in books. Um, and, you know, I, I think there is um, – I think what Delaney is writing about in a way is this kind of romantic notion of America, of, of the um, – of the literate cowboy, you know what I mean? And that, that celebrates uh, the rural world and, and pokes fun at uh, the cities. Um, and that, you know, Delaney himself, you know, is throwing up in a bathroom during a meeting in Hollywood and all this stuff because he can't stand uh, the people that he's working with, all this stuff. But he puts himself in those positions. Like, this is the, he has chosen this life. He has chosen to be a writer, and then he has chosen to be a tower dog. He's chosen these things, and that he finds himself stuck in the middle of this sort of 
um, outsized machismo, like Ryder was talking about, and then also um, this artistic life. These are his choices. And, you know, I, I think it's hard to write a book about choices that seem at odds with each other. Um, and so for me, when I, when I say, you know, I never feel less of a man than when I see these guys that are fighting and drinking and, and doing this shit. Basically what I'm saying is I, I never feel less connected to my physical body. Like this, this, doesn't, <laughs> this doesn't seem like, um, it, seem, it, it's, it seems like a movie, you know? It, it seems like a cowboy movie, um, which is, you know, which is what he's trying to convey. And, you know, hell, I'm just as guilty of it. You know, I, all I do is write books about guys with guns shooting motherfuckers in the face. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> what difference is it from the reality? Um, you know, that's, that it's completely separate from my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You guys should all know that Todd's life is very nice. He doesn't. <laughs> I don't kill anybody. <laughs> he doesn't kill anyone. And his house is really a nice place to be. Thanks, Julia. I, <laughs> I appreciate that. We do have hardwood floors. It's quite lovely. But Ryder, Ryder's living in the woods by himself. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, everybody, that is uh, Tower Dog by Douglas Scott Delaney, Life Inside, the Deadliest Job in America. It's worth picking up and reading. Um, it's, you know, there, it's a book not without its problems, but I think it's also a fascinating examination of a thing you drive by every single day and that you take um, absolutely no thought of when you pick up your phone, that there's people connected to the bars that you see on your cell phone um, and people who lose their lives so that we can have um, easy cell reception while we drive from one Starbucks to the next, thinking about Nietzsche and Hemingway. <laughs> <laughs>